Why is archaeology important in the study of the Bible? Why do archaeologists in general seem to have such a negative attitude toward the Bible? And what is the most important archaeological discovery that relates to the biblical world? Stay tuned for an interview with one of Christendom's best known teachers of biblical archaeology. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I am delighted to tell you that Nathan Jones, my colleague, and I have as our very special guest one of Christendom's best known teachers of biblical archaeology. His name is Dr. James Fleming, and he is from Georgia. James, we are just delighted that you would come and be with us today. It is my privilege. Thanks. Well, we want to start off by just uh, finding out a little bit about you. Would you tell us about your background and uh, also about your credentials so that we, our viewers will know that you know what you're talking about. Well, I feel a bit self-conscious, but um, I grew up with, in an airline family, and I could fly free. <laughs> so that and means so, you went around a lot. After I had finished college, I thought, you know, I ought to use these free flying privileges <laughs> to study overseas. And I went as a student to study in Jerusalem. My reason for Jerusalem is because when I was in college, I noticed... If you wanted to know what the Bible said about something, and I went to a Christian college, uh, make sure you only read one commentary. Because if you read two commentaries, there's three opinions, right? And therefore, if you're really going to be serious, you need to ask, what would this have meant in its original time and place? Okay. So why don't I use some of these free flying privileges to go to Israel for most of the biblical stories, and study time and place. So it was geography, history, archaeology. And I knew that uh, I wanted to be a teacher, and I thought, well, at least geography and history I'd be interested. I wasn't so sure on the archaeology part. You know, that, that's things people made. But I studied with professors from Hebrew and Tel Aviv University. When it came time for a doctor's dissertation, I came back to the United States then. But I chose uh, methods of teaching biblical historical geography and archaeology with an education doctorate. Um, even though I ended up with more theology classes on the doctoral level, wanting to work and live in the Middle East, I thought it would be wiser to have a secular nomenclature degree rather than something that sounded too religious, because there's so such suspicion yes. there. Jews and you're going to be converting people. Yeah. Uh, well, now, you lived in Israel a long time, didn't you? Actually, with uh, 37 years. I went as a student in 69 and then returned as a teacher in 73. Where did you teach there? I taught at what at that time was called the Institute of Holy Land Studies. Yes. Now it's called Jerusalem University College. But within a few years I was asked to give uh, classes at the Hebrew University, the main uh, Israeli university in Jerusalem. They have an overseas campus, 3,000 wow. international students. So I taught there. Now, during that 37 years, would you say you walked about every square mile of Israel? Actually, my first five years there, I could only afford a, a motorcycle. I didn't have a car. <laughs> so a lot of it was motorcycled. But I have a hobby of making relief maps and models. And I made an, a very intentional goal of 
every text in the Bible when somebody walks from place A to place B to try to have walked that in terms of the timing and, yeah. and the scenes and geography, things like that. So it was a great way to learn the land. And I understand you must have had a camera with you most, most of the time because you yeah. told me uh, before this program started, you have over 350,000 photographs of Israel? And unfortunately they were slides, you know, back in okay. the old days. Oh, yeah. So you, now you have to digitalize them? I have this poor gal, bless her heart, <laughs> four and a half years digitalizing. She's only halfway through, but oh. yes. Don't a lot of tour guides owe their abilities to tour Israel because of you? Well, uh, many guides, of course, have learned many things on their own. But I was grateful that for the last 30 years, the government of Israel, and I'm happy to say, and also the Palestinian Authority, said, why should Jews tell Jews what Christian places mean to Christian, or Muslims tell Muslims? Huh. Why don't we have a Christian teach about guiding Christians. So you do that for the Israeli tour guides? Yes, yes. And what do you teach uh, uh, about how Christians view sites? Well, there's general lectures uh, about the life of Jesus, but most of it is taking them on field trips. So at the sites, what is important for a Christian group? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, you have quite a, a facility. I think Nathan was going to ask you about your facility there in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Explorations and Antiquities Center. It was on yes. their website. And uh, it's in LaGrange, Georgia, right? Yes. And you have, it's like being in Israel, right? I mean, it looks fantastic. Can you tell and us you a little about flight. it? And you save the flight. Just have to go to Georgia. I want right? people yeah. to go to Israel. Well, tell, people, make tell people about yeah. the center. Where, first of all, yeah. where is LaGrange, Georgia? Okay. It is uh, 45 minutes south of the Atlanta airport. So you go uh, to Interstate uh, yeah. I-85, which goes from Atlanta to Montgomery, yes. Alabama. It's just inside the Alabama border. Okay. And uh, we chose that because a foundation based in LaGrange offered to give us matching grants for the museum. So it was an offer we couldn't refuse if we would build the museum in LaGrange. Okay. So what do you have there? So uh, this is our fourth place to have a museum of daily life and antiquity. We had three times we had to move in Israel. It's difficult for Christians to find property that's available uh, when you're such a minority. And then it's difficult to maintain it with the ups and downs. Yeah, so and, tourism. Uh, you know, a bomb goes off, everybody cancels their trips And to see, Israel. it was a museum that was particularly focused on Christians. Yes. Uh, we had free entrance for Jews and Muslims wanting locals to come, oh. but it was mainly for Christian pilgrim groups. But like you say, perceived danger. Well, you know, the first time I ran across you, uh, Jim, you had a... Uh, uh, you had a, a, a center there on, I guess, the Bethlehem Road? Yes. Yes, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And you had uh, sites that you could go to where you could see how they dealt with olives and how they dealt mm -hmm. with wheat and how they ate at a table and, yes. and all these various things. It was wonderful. It was like walking through antiquity. Right. And then you had to leave there and go to Ein Kerem, which right. is outside of Jerusalem. And that's, uh, we visited there because wow. later you had to leave that and a lady named So Annie. now you have to come to LaGrange, Georgia. So now we have to come to LaGrange, Georgia. We're just following you around. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry I'm moving so much. <laughs> a wandering <laughs> Jew was my father, right? So, uh, <laughs> How can people find out then about it? And then your ministry and yes. the center? Well, we have a website that's easy to remember. Yeah, just tell them right okay. there in that camera. So, digging for it. It's either the number four or F O R. And that leads you to. Is it diggingforit.net? And it could be .net.com.org. Okay. But dig for well, that's easy. And then that leads you to the museum, or we have a bookstore too, things yes. like that. Okay. And it gives you maps and directions and stuff. Are you open year round? 
We are. All right. And uh, we are closed, like many museums, Sunday and Monday, okay. because it's important to be open for Saturday for most yes. people. Huh. Well, we're, we're hoping to take a video crew there and do some shooting of you actually teaching at these Well, you will be sites. glad to know that you're going to feel, uh, hey, I've seen an Oliver Press like this somewhere <laughs> in Israel. Or, so yes. we have the same kind. We It'll have be a, a deja vu experience. Yeah. We have an area for Life of the Shepherd. We actually have goat hair tents from the Jordan-Iraq border. So they're Life all authentic of, then? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Life of the Farmer. So we'll have... Well, I took a group one time to your site on Bethlehem Road, and we had a biblical meal. We have a whole area where you can have a biblical meal. A couple of rooms are set up for that. And uh, it talks about manners and customs. But most important, what would a Passover meal have been like when the oh, temple was standing? And how can that help us better understand the Last Supper? Jim, I've noticed over the years as I've read a lot in archaeology that uh, most archaeologists seem to hold the Bible in contempt as a reliable historical document. And I'd like for you to comment on that in just a moment, yeah. okay? Sure. Welcome back to our interview of Dr. James Fleming, one of Christendom's best-known uh, teachers of biblical archaeology. Jim, uh, right before the break we were talking about the way in which uh, archaeologists seem to hold the Bible in contempt as a reliable historical document. At least that's the impression that I get from reading a lot of archaeological uh, articles. How about it? Um, there was a period in the mid-1900s where many people had to prove the Bible can be proved by archaeology and the agenda to try to have something specifically you're proving about the Bible. And react to that your training is at a secular university. You want to convince your scientific colleagues that you are objective and not forcing an agenda. Made them send to the other side of trying to uh, almost be afraid to make a biblical connection. But you know what gets me about that is if, if an archaeologist find a piece of papyrus in Egypt with some writing on it, they immediately assume that that is true and that's yeah. authentic. And yet here is the Bible, one of the best preserved documents of antiquity. In fact, the other morning my wife and I were having a devotional and we started reading First Chronicles. The first six chapters are the most detailed chronologies. I, ever, I mean, this is not fairy tales. Yeah. This yeah. is detailed chronologies. Sure. What you should say if you're truly objective is that the Bible should at least be considered as an equal source amongst other ancient sources. Now, for someone of faith, we would have special trust in its authority. But academically, it should at least be taken as a source like any other source and not punished because it was preserved. <laughs> See, yeah. if it was lost and then found, okay, then it's a valuable source. You know, and... Uh, one of the things, and we'll talk about it later, that the Dead Sea Scrolls have showed us is how accurately its memories have been preserved over the centuries and therefore not, you know, demeaned in any way. Yeah. Nathan, you had a question. Yeah, I was wondering, how do you view the historicity of the Bible? Yeah. Um, you know, some places in the Bible are meant to be symbolic and they you know let me tell you a parable about a vineyard on a fertile hill or Jesus saying a man went from Jerusalem to Jericho you're not supposed to say what was the man's name what time of year did he travel he but he's using a specific road as an illustration for a parable or Isaiah 5 there was a vineyard in Judah <laughs> what how are vines in Judah grown um, and 
even if you feel some portions of the Bible might be a parable, a truth for all times and all places, it doesn't mean the historical and geographical references are not important. Yes, yes. I once had three professors I was asked to take around by Hebrew University uh, and show Jerusalem because they were considering having, they happen to be from Germany, of having their university bring students to study at Hebrew University. And there was such resistance to think it was important to visit any place in the Bible because in their mind, many portions of the Bible were not historical. But I convinced them that if you're going to truly be objective, you have to at least at preliminary consider, could this be an historical memory? Your conclusion after that preliminary open to the possibility might be different, but you at least need to be open to that possibility. Well, yes, and quite frankly, I get amused at uh, when I read uh, these uh, uh, secular archaeologists because it seems that quite often their purpose is to prove that the Bible is wrong. Yeah. And it seems like every time they turn over a spade of dirt, they find something that justifies the, the historicity of the Bible. And they always take the, the late or the earlier dates than what are traditionally held, mm-hmm. too, it seems. Well, part of that is you have to write a theory that no one else has written, you know, so that your name and everybody will use oh. your dates, you know, ego enters in there some. But, you know, it is uh, important to at least be open to the possibility that this might be a very accurate uh, remembrance about this time and place. So let's go and study that time, study that place, and be open to that possibility. And for me, I've come to the conclusion that uh, there's, for example, 27 cities named in the Gospels. They're probably named because insight comes to the story if you know where it happened. There's 353 towns mentioned in the Bible. Only crazy archaeologists would count them, right? (laughs) But I have a hunch that meaning comes if you know about the place. Otherwise, the text would say they went to another town. And you and I were discussing something about that this morning, and I think it's important. You, you, how many are mentioned in the Old Testament? Do you remember? Three hundred and fifty-three. You forgot right. already. Well, I, thought you, I didn't know if that was the whole Bible no, or just uh, in the land of Israel. All right. Oh, okay. New Testament, twenty-seven. How in the Gospels, eighty-three. In the Book of How many are mentioned in Josephus? Now, in Galilee, we okay, were talking Galilee, about Galilee. Yes. Josephus mentions in Galilee. 46 towns by name. Okay, now the reason I'm doing this is because you've got all these lists and not one single list mentions Nazareth. Right. So Nazareth had to be a a little podunk town. Yeah, and that is expressed when uh, uh, the excavations found Nazareth was two to three hundred (laughs) people. Unwalled. Now it seems like it's the marriage capital of the world. Every other store is a bridal (laughs) shop. And uh, Cana, on the other hand, was 5,000. Oh. So, sophisticated city slicker Nathaniel from Cana, remember, says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> Nazareth is a you got to yeah. be kidding place. Yeah. And when Pontius Pilate is writing that sign, Jesus of Nazareth, how'd you spell that? N A Z A. The most important thing to remember about Nazareth is Nazareth was not important. And and then you can understand how uh, a mystery of our faith is that a man from such a small village without sophisticated things in their town, without, you know, no university education, uh, uh, has 3,000 
graduate schools around the world today still discussing his sayings. It's one of the mysteries of our faith. God rejoices in the little things, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the evidences to me that he must truly have been God in the flesh. Yep. Well, Jim, you have devoted your life now to teaching biblical archaeology. Why are you, why do you consider this so important? What is the importance of biblical archaeology? If a Christian is serious about their faith, they need to know two worlds very well. They need to know the world of the Bible, their faith document, so that they could better understand what those words would have meant in their time and place. And they need to know their world in which they live mm -hmm. so we can properly correlate this, a similar issue today that that ancient text can address. Or then in your world, this ancient prophecy to understand and study the world today to make a proper application. Well, how about giving us some examples of how understanding archaeology will better help you understand a biblical story or uh, something mm -hmm. in the Bible? Mm -hmm. Of course, every page, uh, <laughs> you know, um, has those. But, uh, for example, um, sometimes a word can be translated two ways. And unless you understand what the original text was, you wouldn't know. Uh, this is going to be surprising to some of your hearers and as viewers of the program, but the word upon and against are the same in Greek. The word lift up, the word uh, lift up, and the word take away are the same. Now, vines in the ancient world don't have wire holding up all the branches like modern vineyards. Yes. At the Last Supper, in John 15, any branch that bears not fruit, I will. Normally it's translated, take away. But the same word is normally translated, actually 75% of the time, I will lift up. It's the word of the ascension story. Hmm. Well, the translator thinks, pictures modern vines already lifted up. Yes. So translated it, I will take away. But it's a very important difference in the meaning between lift up and take away. Did you know that if a vine has a branch that touches the ground and without wires holding them up, they do, it will make its own root. No, I did not know that. And no longer take its nourishment from the deeper mother root of the vine. But so what the vine dresser does is they stick another rock under the vine, another one. To lift it up. Huh. Abide in me. Keep your nourishment coming from my deeper root. I'll lift you up so you won't support your shallow own root. But you see, this is just one little example, but you have to ask, how were vines grown at the time of Jesus? To help interpret the text. Well, give us another example. You must be a walking encyclopedia of these examples. <laughs> of trivia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no. but they help us better understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, gosh, uh, a specific uh, discovery. For example, grave customs. Uh, you never throw away old clothing. You use it as rags, and you tear them up into strips. And you swaddle infants. You wrap infants and you swaddle the dead. The word should be grave cloths, not grave clothes. 
because you would wrap a body with torn up strips of cloth. So are you saying the Shroud of Tur uh, Turin is as, not As an example, you got right <laughs> yes. to it. You know, right? uh, in later periods, you will have a sh burial shroud. Yes. But in biblical times, you would wrap a body with... Now, when you wrap a body, it's fine going up to the shoulders, but then you have to come into the neck. So the head wrappings are always a little bit separate from that, the body wrappings. That would explain then why Lazarus had to be untied. He didn't exactly. just pull off a shroud, right. he had to be untied. Or why there was a separate uh, head, head wrapping for Jesus. So don't think of, huh. you know, if someone had stolen the body and left the grave wrappings, there'd be one pile of grave cloths. But if the body wrappings were one place and there was the head wrappings separate from them, this was what made Peter believe, right? Yes. That the body was gone, but the wrappings were undisturbed. Now, I don't want to make it too literal thing, because obviously the mystery of the resurrected presence of Christ is a reality much more important than just looking at grave yes. claws. But, aha, that's what it would have meant if you stop and ask, what were burial customs in the time of Jesus? Well, we were talking uh, yesterday when, when I picked you up at the airport. We were talking about uh, uh, the, um, uh, how art sometimes has an impact yes. upon our biblical images, yes. uh, uh, and it's an incorrect impact. Yes. Uh, like uh, the song, On a Hill Far Away Stood an Old Rugged Cross, a beautiful song. It's, sure. you know, it has tremendous, it's an artistic interpretation. Yes. But it just doesn't coincide with reality because it didn't crucify people and on hills far away. Up Calvary's Mountain. Things yeah. like that. I mean, they the put them down the road to get an impact, didn't they? The word, it's right outside the gate. Isn't well, it? the word hill yeah. is not mentioned in the text, <laughs> yeah. right? But in our hymns, now part of this is to elevate the meaning of the cross. Right. That's why often the middle cross is normally taller yes. than on either side for the theological importance. Yes. But normally it's along the sides of roads, and usually it's rooted trees. Yes, And that's why half the text will say crucified on a tree. It's not just meaning wood, but most crosses were the criminal carrying the crossbar. That's the word cross. Yes, the, the cross and bar. it's fastened to a tree on the side of the road. Did you know in 6 AD, Josephus tells us, he's a contemporary of the time of Jesus, that there were 2,000 crucifixions in one day in Jerusalem. It was... And all the trees lining the roads to and from Jerusalem became crucifixion places. So the cross looked much more like a tree than we would picture, you know. What was the purpose? Why so many crucifixions along the roads? There was an attempt to revolt against Rome. You put them up close so people can see the suffering and realize. This is yeah. what happens yeah. to anyone who tries to get out from under Roman bondage. The most realistic uh, depiction I've ever seen of that was in the movie Spartacus, where they had, as far as you could see along the road, yep. the rebels. Yep. On and that's to, of course, intimidate the people as they come to the town. Yes. So they were along roads. Now, a road could be in a valley. It can go up a slope. Many could see from a far distance, but it doesn't have to be a hill. It's also a lower valley. You Another example it. would be Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper that uh, has been etched in all of our minds yes. and just about everything in that picture is wrong. Well, <laughs> church art is the culture of the artist. Yes. Not the culture of the Bible. And people eat at table and chairs. 
in the time of Leonardo, so table and chairs. But they didn't in the time of Jesus. In fact, the text actually said they reclined at table. Remember how much trouble artists had for the beloved disciple leaning on Jesus' chest yes. mm -hmm. at table and chairs, right? <laughs> they reclined at table. And so one of the things at our museum uh, is to have replicas, and over 1,000 first century reclining tables have been found in the Mediterranean yes. world. But we have replicas for people to take pictures of them. And they're not straight tables either. No. They're U-shaped. Yes. And can people eat at those tables at your museum? Yes. We, we first of all, tried making it with mattresses like it should be on the floor. But we found very few Americans can lie <laughs> down for an hour and still get up. Yeah. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> so we made an authentic one for pictures. But we actually have, have it like a coffee table in the van. <laughs> So they can support their back. You know. But we have a huge heart on table. the arm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I just know that uh, from personal experience that that when you go to Israel and you actually see these things, it brings the Bible alive yes. in a yes. way that I remember one time when I was in Caesarea Philippi and and we I read the story to the people of Peter making his confession of Jesus there, and then Jesus saying to him, "Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it." And I was told that this huge cavern there was considered by some to be the gate to Hades. And I could just see him gesturing there. Any entrances to the underground yes. were called the gates, gates of Hades. Yes. And that is a grotto. Yes. And uh, it was a pagan place of worship. But many times the New Testament is phrased in a way so you can picture, because you know it's Caesarea Philippi, uh, it's famous for its grotto entering the underworld. And also it's the bottom of a 9,000 foot high, high right. mountain on this rock I will build my church that Jesus probably as a good teacher is using what's around him. Did you know from the Mount of Olives you can see a mountain that was moved? And on the Mountain of Olives Jesus is speaking to his disciples about faith can move mountains. You can see in the distance from the Mount of Olives a mountain that Herod cut off the top of one and put it on another. Right. He moved the whole thing. In all modesty and named it after himself, the Herodian, <laughs> right? But maybe Jesus hands it just as the empire has slaves to move mountains, faith can move mountains. For the rabbis in Jesus' day, a mountain stood for something impossible. Faith can accomplish the impossible. My colleague Nathan Jones and I are in the process of interviewing Dr. James Fleming concerning the importance of biblical archaeology. On the wall behind me here you see a photograph of a place called Qumran. It's located on the shore of the Dead Sea. And at the very top of this barren hill you can see some caves. It was in these caves that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Dr. Fleming, many people consider the Dead Sea Scrolls the most important archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Would you agree with them? I do because it predates existing manuscripts by almost a thousand years. Wow. Well, maybe we can talk more about that next week? Okay. Sounds great. Our time is up, so let me invite you to be back with us again next week when we will interview Dr. Fleming in detail about the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other biblical archaeological discoveries like the City of David. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. What will happen when you die? This monumental question is answered by Dr. David Reagan's book titled, Eternity, Heaven or Hell. Many other questions concerning the afterlife are answered in this easy-to-understand book. 
based upon the clear teachings of the Bible? Can you be certain of life after death? Will you face a judgment before God? Can salvation be lost? Order the book Eternity for a gift of $15 or more plus shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen and ask for the Eternity book. Call Monday through Friday, 8 to 5 Central Time, or order online at landlion.com. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 